Welcome to the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. In this series, Women in Technology and Innovation, we are shining a spotlight on the remarkable female entrepreneurs, business leaders, and engineers who are changing the world through industry and innovation. I'm your host, Samantha Wallravens. This week, we are talking about leadership, and more specifically, the path to leadership for women in technology. I had the privilege of speaking with Kelly Steckelberg, the CFO of Zoom, about her professional journey and what it takes to lead a multi-billion dollar company. Kelly, I just can't thank you enough for what you've and your company has given to us over the past year. You know, Zoom has been our lifeline to work, to, to school, and to our social lives and connecting to our families in this crazy COVID world that we're living in. But thank you for what you're doing. Oh, of course. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I want to start by asking about your career journey. Tell us how you got into technology and specifically why you took the job at Zoom in 2017. So I started my career in public accounting. I have a master's degree in accounting from University of Texas at Austin. And I was lucky to have graduated from a highly recruited program that allowed me to pick where I wanted to live. And that's how I ended up in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And I worked in public accounting for four years. I did audit and tax. And then I went in-house at a company then called PeopleSoft and did tax for a period of time. I was then offered the opportunity to move internationally, which I was thrilled about. I moved to Amsterdam. I lived in Amsterdam for three and a half years, which was an amazing experience, both personally and professionally. I decided to come back to the Bay Area at some point, and I went to a company then called Epiphany, where I was recruited in by one of my former bosses from PeopleSoft. That was a great experience as well. I was there for five years. And then, as you said, I went to WebEx, and I worked at WebEx for about a year before we were acquired by Cisco. And that was really interesting because I had never really set out to work for a company the size of Cisco, but I think in, in most um, opportunities like that, I've looked for what's the benefit I can get from it. And it was amazing. I met a lot of amazing, smart people at Cisco. I learned how to navigate in a larger environment, and that was really great. But I had a goal of becoming a public company CFO. And the reason, one of the reasons that I had joined WebEx was the CFO there was looking for a successor because he was planning to retire in a few years. And so when that didn't work out, I decided to look for another opportunity to make that goal come true. And I'd never worked in a startup or a private company environment. So that's when I decided to go to Zeus. And that was an amazing experience as well. I learned about consumer internet, which I hadn't done before. And we tried to take that company public. It unfortunately did not work. However, it did then present the opportunity for me to become the CEO of the company, which was another amazing experience. And I got to do that for a period of time. And then when I decided, again, I wanted to be back on my public company CFO path, that led me back to Eric and ultimately to Zoom. And I've been at Zoom now a little over three years. I joined about a year and a half before we took the company public. So got to be a big part of that transaction and preparing the company for what it was going to look like to be a public company. And then, of course, I've lived through the last year, which has been an amazing experience. I don't think any of us ever anticipated, but all of it has, has led me to, I think, the perfect place of where I'm supposed to be. So as CFO of Zoom, you're part of a very elite group. Just 11% of tech executives are women. Uh, in finance, the numbers are almost as bad. Less than 17% of senior positions in finance are held by women. 
in your view, why are the numbers so low and what's sort of your secret sauce to success? I think the numbers are so low for a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, you just mentioned the stats, right? And so when women look around, they don't see someone who looks like them in the role that they're aspiring to be. And, and that can be discouraging. So I think that's one that I think that the diversification of boards and diversity of management teams will ultimately become a self-fulfilling prophecy and improving that. I think that women and also underrepresented ethnicities suffer more from imposter syndrome than, than others. And I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but I think that's certainly contributing factor. And then I think that women often more than men struggle with how to balance all aspects of their lives. And I have some amazing friends along the way who were incredible executives who have, have opted out of working and focus on their families. I will say, I want to, in full transparency, I am unique in the situation that I don't have children and I am currently not married. So I have certainly prioritized my life in a different way than, for example, some of my friends who made different choices. I think the goal though is create an opportunity and an environment where women don't have to choose, right? You don't have to choose between family and a career. You can be in a situation that you can balance it all. And that's what we're striving for at Zoom, certainly. And you know, my goal also as a female executive and leader is that we're helping educate people on how they can do it all. Yeah. Well, that's my next question is. What is Zoom doing to promote women at the company and what's being done to promote women in the tech industry as a whole? So huge credit to Eric, our founder and our CEO. At the time that we went public, there were four executive officers and three of them were women. So currently our CMO, our COO and our CFO are all female. And then we have a a male CRO and then Eric is our CEO who currently rounds out and and we have a male president who rounds out our executive team. So very strong support, which is great to see in the leader. And then as we've moved through, especially through this pandemic, we have been very intentional about listening to our employees, first of all, and really paying attention to what's what's happening with them. And we do see that the pandemic specifically is stressing our female employees more than it is stressing our male employees in general. They are finding it harder to balance, you know, being a teacher as well as often taking care of the home and managing their career and their work balance at the same time. And so we are being very thoughtful about boundaries. We are being very thoughtful about ways that we can support them. So a few things that we've done, which again, unfortunately, some of these responsibilities still fall primarily to the women. We used to have a gym membership or a gym membership stipend at the company that you could apply for and you'll get reimbursed monthly. We have now expanded that, that it can be used for any, most anything that would help make your life easier during this time, like meal delivery. And we've heard from our employees that, you know, not everything about making dinner one night a week is really a, a huge benefit to them. So just being thoughtful about how we can continue to support all of our employees, 
but especially the ones that are in distress, which unfortunately is more often right now, the women than the men. Yeah, exactly. There's been a lot written about how to shatter the glass ceiling to get more women into the C-suite. But the McKinsey report we read for today shows that women get stalled in their careers long before they reach this higher level. They discuss a phenomenon they call the broken rung, where women are promoted to manager levels at lower rates than men. Do you see this happening in the technology world? And how do women get beyond this impasse early on in their careers? So where I've had this challenge in my career is convincing people that didn't know me very well, that I had the capabilities to move to the next level. And so what I learned, the best way to do that is to ask for more responsibility or assume a role with people that already know me and already trust me. I'll give you an example. When I was at Zeus, I was talking to the president and he was asking me about problems having supporting a team. And I asked him, well, like, what do you expect from them? How are you trying to manage that? What are the metrics you're measuring them by? And it was so interesting because he turned to me and he said, do you want to manage them? And what it made me realize was like, I had all of these strengths that I could draw on to manage a team that he was struggling with. And it was, it was customer success. So it had nothing to do with finance, nothing to do with my background. And yet, because he knew me and he understood the other skills that I had, he was confident enough to give me that. If I had tried to go externally and apply for, um, you know, to lead a customer success team, there's no way that I would have been given that opportunity because my my background, my resume did not support that. So the way that I've done this is look for opportunities within the organization where you are with people that trust you and love you and ask for more responsibility there. And often I think raising your hand, even if it doesn't feel like it's exactly something you want to do, but it might be an opportunity to expand your skill set, I think is a really effective way to show that you're ready for more responsibility. So Cheryl Sandberg in her 2013 book, Lean In, talks about the challenges that women face as they climb the career ladder. Her advice is that women should lean in more and take their seat at the table. What are your thoughts on this advice? Is it solely on us women to forge our own path? Well, I think the ideal situation is both. We, as employers, for example, need to ensure that we are meeting the needs and supporting women along their career journey. In all things in your life, you are the one who is responsible for your career journey. You are the one that understands and knows best what it is you want to accomplish. Now, being um, transparent and articulate about that is really helpful. Like expressing to your manager, like my employees that come to me and are very clear about what they want to accomplish. It's so much easier for me then to help guide them than those who just say, I just want to be promoted or I just focused on a title. Like being very clear about what's important to you in your career, continuing to expand your skill sets, having a goal of a role you're striving for in the future, even if it's five years from now, you say to me, I want to be a public company CFO, then I can help you look across your skills that you have today and say, okay, that's awesome. Because now I can help ensure that the opportunities we're providing to you are going to round out the skills that you still need to build upon. And that is much easier and much more exciting for a manager to help you with than just saying, I want a manager title. And, and that's what I would encourage all of you to do is be very clear as you're progressing in your career, what is next for you? What are you striving for? Or in, even in the future, if it's a longer term out, that way you can keep accumulating those skills along the way so that when you get that opportunity, you're prepared for it. And that's a great point. I mean, how often do you recommend having these conversations with your managers? Is it something that you 
hold on to, you know, that your, your annual performance review, or is this something, a discussion that you're having more frequently with your, your manager? Those are discussions that you should be having whenever an opportunity presents itself. Don't wait for your annual review cycle because it might be that in the last year, an opportunity could have come up that you might've been perfect for or a project even. It might not be an opportunity. It might just be a project that if your manager doesn't know you're interested in expanding your skills, they're not even going to think of you potentially for that. So I wouldn't say it's something that only happens annually. It can happen as frequently as it makes sense for you. And it can be just like, I do things often informally, even with people outside of my direct report team, like, hey, would you, we're all able to do it more safely. You know, would you like to go get a coffee? Do you want to take a walk around the block? Those discussions lend themselves to more informal situations when they're possible. So let's talk a little bit about, you've been in two industries, finance and technology that are very male dominated. There's the term, the bro culture in Silicon Valley. You know, it's the guys kind of know each other. It's the old boys network. You've managed to succeed in both of these worlds. Have you experienced this sort of bro culture, this, these sexist attitudes and behaviors? And if so, how did you navigate them? So uh, unfortunately, I do think this still exists in certain pockets. I think it's getting better. I think there's a much bigger awareness. When I joined Zeus, for example, it was very interesting how the founder and the C- there were co-founders, the CEOs, and they would, when they took me, with them to visit with VCs, how they said the whole environment changed because I was often the only female in the room. So what that says to me and how I try to conduct myself is I believe that people will rise to the level of expectation of their behavior that you have of them. And if you hold yourself in a way that shows that you respect them and you are asking them to respect you in that same way, generally people will do that. I've been lucky that I've had a few situations. I have had a few. And honestly, it happened in a boardroom. I was so shocked that it was happening. I couldn't even sort of accept it at the time. And having another female there later to say, like, did that really just happen? It was at least a reflection, to, you know, an opportunity to go back and reflect on, should I have done something differently? Was it on me? Was it on them? But I think the best thing that I, the best thing that I can offer is, You may face it in your career. Unfortunately, it's not something that's gone. It will be at some point in the future. But I think holding yourself in a manner that says, I deserve to be here just in the same way you do, being prepared so that you can always respond and stand up and take those questions and hold your own, I think are the, the best ways that you can combat that. Yeah. So you were recently appointed to the board of Qualtrics. Congratulations on that. Thank Can you, you explain to us the impact of having more women and people of color on boards? How does that propel women into leadership roles? I think having more women and people of color on boards is amazing because it does a couple of things. First of all, as the board is more diverse, it pushes the leadership team and the management team to be more diverse as well. And it's very interesting, right, that the diversity of boards is being mandated almost by the NASDAQ and in international countries by laws of those countries. And yet leadership teams are not, do not have the same requirements. And so it's going to be incumbent in some ways upon the boards to ensure that that is the case. We have a couple of female board members on the Zoom board that I love to talk to them and they give you perspective. So it's really great. It gives you 
not only an avenue for, again, to my first point, seeing people that look like you and what you aspire to be and give you that confidence, but also the other really important part about having a diverse board is that board then reflects the customer base of the company. It's really good for business as well. You want to ensure that you have diversity across your board, your leadership team, and your ranks of your company so that in all aspects of your product or your service or whatever you're providing, you make sure that you're reflecting those perspectives of your customer base, which can't look like just one leader in your product team or just one leader in your services organization. Who have been the mentors who have been most helpful to you? And how do we find mentors as we launch careers? Yeah. So I've been really fortunate along my career to have had some great bosses who were willing during that their time as my boss, but also afterwards to continue to provide leadership and mentorship to me. One of them was, I kind of mentioned him earlier, Mike Everett, who was the CFO of WebEx. You can believe this. At the time, software as a service was a new thing when I went to WebEx, and I didn't have that experience, but he took a chance on me. And he also was willing to put me in consideration to be his successor. So also as a public company CFO, which I hadn't done at that point. And he continues to give me feedback even today. Um, Mike is currently retired, but he was an amazing public company CFO. And after Zoom's earning calls almost every quarter, he'll send me just a quick little email like, hey, this went really well, but maybe I didn't really understand your point about this. And that's great because he's been in the seat that I am in and he understands the investor side and is willing to take that time to give me feedback. And we have actually adjusted things in our earnings call because of Mike's feedback. And then there's another woman, uh, Robin Washington. Robin was my boss initially at PeopleSoft when I was in Europe. She's gone on, she's amazing. She's now on the board of Alphabet. She's on the board of Salesforce, an amazing person. And what I really appreciated from Robin was she was really good about giving feedback in the moment. And Sometimes it's so hard to take, like she is, she's very candid, but when you look back on it, what you realize is those are the most helpful opportunities to grow. And Robin has just been such an inspiration to me because she's gone on and continues to do amazing things. And so following behind her makes me really aspire to be like her. And when I look at what she's accomplishing, I'm like, Hey, if she can do it, I can do it too. That brings me to a question about fear that we have of developing relationships. We had a question last week about networking during COVID and how do you develop these relationships during COVID. Zoom is one way. It's not quite the same as being with a person side by side, but how do you develop these relationships? Yeah. Everything is over is online or over Zoom. How do, how do you facilitate that? How does that work? So and it's, it, I agree with you, it's not as easy or as fun as necessarily inviting someone to meet you for a coffee or going for a walk. What I would say is, first of all, there are, I'm sure, you know, in, in my area, there are still events happening. There are CFO networking events. So I'm sure those types of events are happening for you as well and that employers are conducting them. And if they are, go. I know, it, again, it might not seem as fun, but still showing up in a Zoom or getting the opportunity to go. For example, I did an accounting information night recently for a different university. And then they did, they broke up into breakout groups. And it was a great opportunity for students to get, to have the opportunity to talk to professionals in their industry. So if you have the opportunity to go to those, go to them. And 
I think it just takes all of us being a little bit more intentional about this. Or the other thing I would say is reach out to people that you want to network with. If there's somebody that's in a role that you're aspiring to be, and my recommendation for anybody, if you're reaching out, if you're asking for someone for some of their time or to be a mentor, is be very specific about what it is that you want from them and make it easy for them. What are Zoom's plans? This is a little bit outside the realm of your your path to leadership, but what are Zoom's plans for going, having their employees go back to work? I know some companies in Silicon Valley are saying, we're going to be remote only indefinitely. Some are you know, saying we're, we want our employees back. They they need to be around each other when, you know, when we're all vaccinated. And what are you guys thinking at Zoom? So we are still working on our plans. As I mentioned before, first and foremost, we're listening to our employees. We often are doing these little pulse surveys to see how people are feeling. And there are certainly pockets of our employees that are very anxious to go back. There are other employees that are nervous about going back. So what we have said is, given this technology that we live on every day, there is no reason for us to be aggressive and ever want our employees to have to worry about their safety, of course. So we've said that we will be very conservative. We are watching others in the space and that we will wait until everybody feels really comfortable with it. And then probably wait till another month after that, even like we, we, we're not in a hurry and we have seen that our employees have been able to be as effective here. But when we talk to our employees, of course, the things that they're missing are community and collaboration and the ability for them to do their work. And certainly we've seen that in the productivity of the company has not been hindered during this time. So trying to make sure that as a leadership team, we're working on building community in other ways while we're doing that via Zoom and making sure that we will all be safe when we ultimately decide to go back. At the earliest, it'll be the fall of this year, and it it might be later than that. Let's talk about imposter syndrome. It's such an interesting topic because I find that in, when I interview executives like you, often it's like the most accomplished, most successful, smartest people who suffer from imposter syndrome, which is that feeling like I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I shouldn't be here, they're gonna find out that I'm an imposter. Have you felt that? And wh- when did you feel that? And how did you navigate that when you yeah. were experiencing it? So, of, of course, I felt that. And I think the, the best example I can share with you is when I was at Zeus, I was presented the opportunity to become the CEO, was the then CEO called me into his office on a Friday afternoon. And I had no idea that this was coming. And he said to me, well, the co-founder and I, we've spent the last week talking to the board and they were running up and down um, Sand Hill Road talking to all our VC investors. And we have told the board that we're going to step down. And on Monday morning, the board wants to meet with you and they're prepared to offer you the CEO job. And the very first thought, the very first thought that popped in my head was, I don't know how to be a CEO. So I was so stunned. And then I thought to myself, like, oh my gosh, like, what are you thinking? And so luckily it was Friday. So I had the opportunity to go home over the weekend and compose myself and break the news to my then husband that we weren't going to travel around the world, which is what we were about to set off to do. And (laughs) so kind of, you know, change in plans. But what I did and what I'm able, when I had some time to step back for a minute and think about it, I was able to reflect upon the fact that every single day I had had ideas about how 
I would make the company better if I had the chance. And that's what I ultimately drew upon by the time I got to Monday morning to meet with the board members to say, yes, you know what? I can do this. These are some of the things that I've been thinking about. These are the areas of opportunity that I see. These are the things I don't think we're doing so well. And the company was in a very interesting state. It was in a kind of a financial transition state. And so my skills did align very well to what was really needed and some difficult decisions. To give you an example, we ended up reducing the employee headcount in half within kind of my first three months in tenure as a CEO, which is a very difficult decision. And those were some of the worst days of my life that we had to go through that. But I could understand what, what the ultimate outcome was going to be if we didn't do that. And while it was a very emotional time, it couldn't be an emotional decision. It had to be a rational decision about the financial outcome of the company. And that played well to my strengths. Now, over time in my CEO role, I learned a lot and I had to ask a lot of questions. I didn't pretend that I knew things that I did. I just asked questions. And I think that's where, after I got sort of over that feeling of being an imposter, then I had to sort of openly embrace, I don't know everything about this role and I'm just going to keep asking questions. And then you start to see like when you're asking the right questions because your team, the way they react, they're like, oh, she's getting it now. And that feels good. Then you continue to build that confidence. So asking questions, listening, those are attributes of a good leader. What are some other attributes? But what makes a good leader? That's a great question. Listening, not assuming that you know everything, not being afraid to hire really great people in people that might have skills and are more skilled than you are, because you can't hang on to everything. Uh, to be a great leader, what you ultimately are doing, and I've been able to do this successfully in some of my jobs, is like you should be hiring a team that ultimately can succeed you. That's what you're trying to do. The worst thing you could do in leader, in my view, is have an insecurity that you need to keep it all to you that you want to be the go-to person. And, and that's, that's natural. We all want to feel needed. We all want to, but you need to empower your teams and ensure that they are trained and that you've delegated down to them, that people can go to them. And then you have to give them the space to do it. So that when a question comes, for example, when I was a new manager, when I would see an email that would come in, my first reaction was to want to reply to that, but realizing that I need to give my team an opportunity to do that. And, and let them have the opportunity to, to step up and be seen as the expert in an area. And then if for some reason it's not exactly right, to then go behind the scenes and give them that feedback or give them that coaching so that you behind the scenes are building them up, but you never do that in front of others. So this past year during COVID, your numbers have just skyrocketed on Zoom. Obviously, we're all on Zoom all the time. The platform now, I believe the latest number I saw was has over 300 million daily users, and that's compared to 10 million in December 2019. So as one of the, the leaders of the company, what are the biggest challenges you faced in managing this hypergrowth at Zoom? So it was really crazy. I remember March 15th was kind of the day that everything changed for Zoom. And almost overnight, as you say, we went from 10 million daily meeting participants to over 300 million. And the challenge was first ensuring that our customers and the prospects and that anybody who wanted and needed access to Zoom had access. So you have to kind of start to look at, well, how does that roll through the company and its systems? It starts with the sales organization. So how do we make sure they have the support they need? 
And then it goes to the capacity of our data centers. How does that work? And then it keeps going. How do you provision the services? How do you make sure the technical support team has enough? So as a team, as a leadership team, we came together on a very regular basis to look at the priorities and see where we needed resources. How do you add them? And specifically as the CFO, what I wanted us to be very thoughtful about was what are the the long-term needs that we're adding and we're addressing and what are potentially the shorter-term needs. The long-term needs are increased demand, so we need more salespeople. Okay, we're likely going to need more salespeople for the life of this company, so that makes sense to hire them as full-time employees as quickly as we can. We had an extreme buildup in the backlog of our support tickets, though, and that we assumed would be a short-term need, meaning we could hire some full-time employees to address this, but also it could be well-served by having third-party resources come in and in the short-term try to get that queue down and not get ahead of ourselves in terms of over-hiring. So that's how we prioritize as a company, really looking at long-term and short-term needs and trying to be thoughtful to ensure that we didn't get overextended as a company while reacting to this significant demand that we saw. And I think we did a pretty good job. Uh, you know, there were certainly some bumps along the way. But the other thing that we did as a company was we have a radically transparent culture internally and externally. And when we did make some mistakes as the company along the way, we were very open about that. We were very open in our blogs about some of the issues that we were addressing. And I think that both our employee base as well as our customer base really recognized and appreciated how transparent we were, even when we we're having difficult times. And then how do you, what do you foresee for Zoom in our post-COVID world? I'm sure you've planned out a number of years when hopefully we're back in the office, in class, with our loved ones. What, how do you envision things continuing to grow and expand? Well, I think that what we've all seen during this time is there are some benefits for certain meetings or activities being conducted on Zoom. And our goal as a company is always to make these experiences be just as good as being in person. And so what I think is going to happen is that as we continue to progress you know, through, through vaccine availability, that we're never going to go back to exactly the way it was before. We're going to go back to a way that's now better. And what I mean by that is flexibility for employees. We've had a lot of employees who have moved. They've moved to be near family. They've moved to lower class locations. And that's great because we now have a technology and we're working on specific things within the product to support that so that certain employees that want to be remote, they're going to have a very similar experience to those who eventually are working within the office. I think that you're going to see services, for example, like um, I have an employee who was previously taking her children to a tutoring center. And what's happened during this experience and this pandemic is the tutoring center has now been able to expand where it's looking for tutors. And she's gotten even better tutors for her children in specific areas that she wasn't able to get when she was going in person to this location in Menlo Park and meeting up with them in person. And so that's where you start to see the opportunity for expansion Presume to be integrated into our daily lives, in certain, not in all aspects of it, but in certain aspects of it, and in fact, enriching it and making it even better than it was before. So what piece of advice as far as for those who aspire to the C-suite, what would you tell them? Okay, well, I, I want to give them two, so if I can. Mm-hmm. So the first one I would say is 
Keep looking for opportunities to expand your skill set. My career approach has been to say yes to anything that I thought was going to bring me new skills. And it might not always present itself in the way that you expect. It might not be a clear path straight ahead. It might be something that's lateral. It might be something in a different team. But looking for those opportunities, because ultimately what you're building is you know, a very well-rounded set of experiences that will lead you to that C-suite. You know, I did a tax rotation. I did an international rotation. And all of those things, ultimately, as I was moving through my career, have served me very well, just for my own edification, but also as future employers or prospective employers were looking at my resume, they thought, oh, look, she has international. Oh, she has tax, like things that were important to them. And the second thing that I would say, which I think is great to remember, no matter where you are in your life or career, is to trust your instincts. If something doesn't feel right to you, it probably isn't. If something feels great to you, it probably is. And when I look back on my career, the decisions that I regretted were where I went against really my gut. And for some other reason, I convinced myself somebody wanted me to do something differently than I thought was best. And so really listening to yourself, you know a lot and you will know more than you think as you're progressing through your career. So really trust your strengths, trust your instincts. And ultimately that will likely lead you to the best decision for yourself and probably for your career and your life. That's wonderful advice. I agree wholeheartedly. Kelly, thank you so much for this time. It's just been wonderful talking to you and hearing about your career and your experiences. Thank you. Thank you for joining the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. The Lehigh at NASDAQ Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center. Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire the next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. To learn more about us, go to nasdaqcenter.lehigh.edu and follow us on Instagram. We are at Lehigh NASDAQ Center. I hope that you enjoyed learning from Kelly Seckelberg's executive leadership experience as much as I did. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast content. Join me next week for a discussion with our young alumni panel, Christine Kwan of Dropbox, Emma Catlin of Pinterest, and Kira Gobes from Amazon Web Services, who will share their perspectives and the insights they've learned as early stage professionals in engineering and data science.